Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 24, A Tale of Two Colonies. Remember that this podcast relies on listener support, and one of the best ways of doing that is by signing up for membership. This gives you access to our premium content for the cost of only $5 per month. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Victoria and Bram. Thanks guys, I couldn't do this show without you. I want to start this week with a correction on pronunciation. Listener Christopher has informed me that I've been a bit off with a couple of Native American names. The chief, who was allied to Plymouth and who journeyed there for Thanksgiving, should be pronounced Massasoit, and his tribe should be pronounced Wampanoag. Thanks for the tip, Christopher. A couple of days after the Thanksgiving feast, the Nausets sent word to the pilgrims that they had sighted a ship around Cape Cod. This put the English on edge, expecting this to be a French ship looking to attack. They readied themselves, but this wouldn't have been particularly intimidating since their military force, commanded by Standish, was around 20 men strong. The next day, the ship came within their sight, and then startled the colonists by putting up an English flag. It turns out that this ship was the Fortune, commanded by one Robert Cushman, who had come over to investigate how things were going, and brought with him 35 new colonists. This may seem like a good thing. The pilgrims would be reunited with some of those they'd been forced to leave behind in the Netherlands, but practically speaking, it was a disaster. After the sickness had thinned their numbers, there were around 50 settlers at this juncture. They had enough food stored up to see themselves through the winter. What they did not have was enough food for 85 people. This was very much a mixed blessing to have these extra mouths to feed. It wasn't all bad news, though. The arrival of the Fortune was the first contact the Pilgrims had had since the Mayflower had departed, and it contained communications from London, notably from Weston. Weston wasn't happy that the Mayflower had returned without a full cargo, and asked that they stock up the Fortune for its return. Bradford wrote an elegant reply, but bizarrely, Weston withdrew from the Enterprise before the Fortune could return. It also informed the Pilgrims of the developing legal situation that the London merchants had been able to gain a patent for the colony from the Council for New England. The Fortune didn't have the best of return voyages. The Pilgrims had duly filled up the ship with a mixture of sassafras, lumber, and beaver pelts, with a collective value of £500, and it set off back to England after a few weeks. Once it was off the English coast, it was taken by a French privateer who took the cargo, but did allow the crew to leave along with their papers. The pressing issue for the pilgrims was sorting out the food supply. Bradford estimated that if they went on half rations, they would be able to get through roughly six months until June. The winter was fortunately quite mild, 
so the Pilgrims were able to stay healthy and active. Bradford was very proud that by March, each family had its own garden plot. There is an anecdote Bradford includes about the Christmas of 1621, which I would describe as quite interesting. So, if you'll allow me to quote... On this day called Christmas Day, the governor called them out to work, as was used... But the most of this new company excused themselves and said that it went against their consciences to work on that day. So the governor told them that if they made it matter of conscience, he would spare them till they were better informed. So he led away the rest and left them. But when they came home at noon from their work, he found them in the street at play openly, some pitching the bar and some at stoolball and such like sport. So he went to them and took away their implements and told them that it was against his conscience that they should play and others work. If they made the keeping of it a matter of devotion, let them keep to their houses, but there should be no gaming or revelling in the streets, since which time nothing hath been attempted that way, at least openly. End quote. The pilgrims do not celebrate Christmas. So that brings us into 1622. There were stirrings of trouble from the Narragansetts, but they were not really prepared to do anything fearing guns. The pilgrims made moves to defend themselves and spent five weeks constructing a palisade throughout the winter, while Standish got underway training his forces, which with the new recruits was about 50 men strong, which he divided into four companies. One of these had an extra function, where it trained what to do if the Indians set fire to one of the buildings. As spring 1622 arrived, they planned an expedition to Boston Bay to trade with the Massachusetts. One of the Indians living with them, Hobomock, tried to dissuade them, claiming that the Massachusetts were in league with the Narragansetts. The leadership was not convinced and believed that withdrawing from the expedition would show cowardice. Considering their small numbers, much of their negotiating position came from perceived power rather than any attack they had made. If they made a single action to highlight their actual weakness, it would shatter the illusion. They couldn't not go. So they set off. But as soon as they left, Squanto reported that the Narragansetts and Massasoits were attacking and so the expedition immediately returned. Hobomock said that the rumour was false, and an embassy was sent to Massasoit, and it was found out that there was in no way an attack being prepared. There are suspicions that Squanto was trying to manipulate the situation to exaggerate his own importance to both sides. Massasoit was extremely annoyed with him, causing Squanto to never leave the English again. Massasoit demanded that Squanto be handed over to him, but he was too valuable, and the English came up with excuse after excuse about why they couldn't hand him over. Massasoit was so annoyed that he ceased to visit Plymouth. The journey to deal with the Massachusetts could finally get underway, some trade happened, but nothing particularly important. They were unable to secure a supply of food when, at the end of May, they saw another ship on the horizon, the Sparrow, 
which had been sent by Weston and had been fishing off the main coast. On board were some letters, one of which informed them of the massacre that had taken place in Virginia, and then there were a series of letters from Weston, the first of which pledged his support for the colony, but then, as they went on, they announced that he had sold his shares in the company, and then that he was planning on launching his own colony, and had seven men on this ship who would form an advanced guard for this possible rival colony. And then he had no food for said men, so he asked if they could look after them. He promised he would send food in the future, which he didn't. The pilgrims were not impressed. In Bradford's own words, quote, Thus all their hopes in regard of Mr. Weston were laid in the dust, and all his promised help turned into empty advice, which they apprehended was neither lawful nor profitable for them to follow. And they were not only thus left destitute of help in their extreme wants, having neither vitals nor anything to trade with, but others prepared and ready to glean up what the country might have afforded for their relief. As for those harsh censures and suspicions intimated in the former and following letters, they desired to judge as charitably and wisely of them as they could, weighing them in the balance of love and reason, and though they, in part, came from godly and loving friends, yet they conceived many things might arise from over-deep jealousy and fear, together with unmet provocations, though they well saw Mr. Weston pursued his own ends and was embittered in spirit. End quote. As the pilgrims entered June with several extra mouths to feed, they ran out of food. Completely. They had no more supplies. Finding food proved difficult. The wild fowl was out of season, as were the ground nuts. There was also difficulties with fishing. It's all well and good saying there were a loss of fish in the bay, but how do you get them out? Think about it. You're stood on a beach, looking out into the water. There are plenty of fish there, but how do you get them out? Short answer, they couldn't. They didn't have any nets which were strong enough to catch bass, and they didn't have any bait which could be used in the deep water which cod live in. There was only one option left. Seafood. They found mussels, clams and lobsters, which were available, although they required plenty of effort to get at. They were very lucky in that hot summer to survive on an entirely seafood diet with no bread or vegetables. The Sparrow returned to Maine shortly afterwards and Winslow travelled with them in an attempt to secure food. The pilgrims had constructed two shallops, a type of small boat, and he took one of them. The fishermen didn't have much by the way of food stores, but they gave what they could spare to Winslow and wouldn't accept payment. He brought back enough bread for four ounces per day per person, which would be enough to tide them over until the harvest. When he returned, he found that, while disease hadn't broken out, the pilgrims were visibly weaker. That summer was very hard. On so little food, it was a struggle to tend to the crops. 
60 acres being grown this year, as opposed to the 20 of 12 months previously. They also worked on building a fort on the nearby hill, named Fort Hill, funnily enough. The other event of the summer was the arrival of two more ships from Weston, the Charity and the Swan, carrying between them 60 colonists for the new settlement. Much like the pilgrims and the men chosen by the merchants for the initial expedition, they did not get on. They stayed at Plymouth for about six weeks throughout the summer. They sheltered there, they took food from Plymouth, severely damaging their crops, they left their sick there, and then they departed to go found a colony in Massachusetts Bay. In return, they uh, did nothing. They didn't allow the pilgrims access to their food supply. What lovely guests. These 60 ventured north and founded Wesser Gusset Colony on the site of the modern Weymouth in Massachusetts. Plymouth is now no longer alone in New England, where there was one. Now there were two. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us, we were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a governor with a large jaw and an assistant with a plain face residing in Plymouth. There were a governor with a large jaw and an assistant with a plain face residing in Wessagusset. In both colonies, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the town preserves of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord, 1622. What? You thought I was going to call this episode A Tale of Two Colonies and not do that? Yeah, I know, I'm just the blurst. The former captain of the Mayflower returns to Plymouth in September, this time commanding the Discovery, which stopped off there on its way from Virginia. He drove a really hard bargain, but the pilgrims were in a desperate plight and were in no position to negotiate from. Their own harvest was very small, damaged by the Wessagusset colonists and starving pilgrims. The captain had spare supplies and items for trade, with the Indians which he was more than happy to part with for double its value. He would also be very happy to buy up their beaver skins for a fifth or a sixth of what they were worth. In October, a ship arrived in England from Weston, with a winter's worth of supplies for Wessagusset. Wessagusset was led by one Mr. Richard Green, the brother-in-law of Weston, with John Sanders as the second-in-command. While the government of Plymouth was quite stable, it wasn't at Wessagusset. The grain supply was wasted, and there was immediately a panic over a foreseeable famine. 
Crean proposed that there be a joint expedition to the south side of Cape Cod to trade with the goods Plymouth had recently acquired. This was agreed, Standish would command, and Squanto would be the guide. Green travelled to Plymouth, but there he died of a fever. There was a ceremonial burial, as befitting the leader of their sister colony. And then they set off. Twice, storms pushed them back, and then a third time Standish fell ill, but finally, on the fourth attempt, Bradford and Squanto set off to sail around Cape Cod. It was quite successful, and the pilgrims managed to secure some food. Eight hogsheads of corn and beans. I should clarify that a hogshead isn't a literal hogshead, but rather a type of barrel. Funnily enough, Goodwin describes a hogshead as being able to carry 191 beaver skins. As though this is a unit of measurement the reader will be intimately familiar with. I don't know about you, but when either I or my friends are buying a car, I always ask the dealer how many beaver skins I can fit in it. How big a hogshead is varied, with different measurements in place depending on what it was carrying, but a full hogshead could fit something in the region of 60 gallons, around 230 litres, or in terms of weight, a thousand pounds or 450 kilograms. When they were preparing to continue their journey, they met with trouble as Squanto caught a fever and died. It was a huge loss. Bradford personally looked after him as his health faded, and he asked Bradford if he could pray that he go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Faced with this disaster, they decided not to continue to sail southwards, but instead sailed back to Boston Harbour. There they bought ten hogsheads worth of food, although he had trouble with bringing it home, so this was stored and brought home at a later date. This he did somewhere else as well. Bradford was curious about the country, and so he decided to walk home rather than sail. He travelled around visiting the other neighbours, stopping off to see Massasoit. This brought to an end 1622. Things were not looking promising. There was a growing uneasiness amongst the Native American tribes of the region, and they hadn't secured anything like enough food, partly due to the activities of the Wasagusset colonists. The value of the goods they were able to trade had diminished to a quarter of what it once was. Things were not promising, as the third year of Plymouth Colony began. This is where we'll close things for this week. If you've enjoyed what you've heard in this episode, you can find more information online at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, where you can sign up for membership. If you want to continue the conversation on social media, then you can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. Feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 